Well, I'd invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. We are uh, still in chapter 5, making our way cautiously through this wonderful chapter. We're in verses 16 to 18, which is a continuation of Paul's discussion on freedom that we embarked on last Sunday, so I'm excited to get into that with you. While you're turning, I want to say that there's no doubt a great misunderstanding about the right way to be saved and how to live the Christian life in the minds of the Galatians, courtesy of the false teachers. But I don't think I would be far off or wrong in saying that this misunderstanding is not unique to them. In fact, we find it in many circles of Christianity in America today. False views of the faith about how one is saved and how one lives the saved life abound today due to bad teaching or just lack of it. And I've found much of what presents as Christianity in this country, frankly, embarrassing and really a poor testimony for Christ and the true gospel way. But it is so established that those raised in it will actually criticize those who teach sound doctrine, as we'll see very shortly. The conflict in the faith, this conflict, it reminds me of a similar one in the world, one between America's workforce and an individual named Mike Rowe. Maybe you've heard of Mike. Rowe is an American television host and narrator of the celebrated series Dirty Jobs on the Discovery Channel who coined the phrase safety third. Huh. He and his crew have worked on more jobs, uh, job sites than any other TV crew in the history of television, which means that he knows something or a little something about safety. And he came to the conclusion that the idea of safety first is something that organizations push really for their own benefit and not for the benefit of the employee. It's a way to really cover themselves in the event that you have an accident as long as they have all the signs posted and proper PPE prescribed and steps in place, well, they're protected. But are you? Rose says, not necessarily and usually not. Statistics show that when people in workplaces or anywhere where they're, are, where they're dependent upon such protection protocol will become lax in their responsibility to look after themselves. Huh. One such statistic, for example, shows that more accidents happen at crosswalks that are outfitted, fully outfitted with all the safety signs and lights and arrows and electronic voice prompts than the crosswalks that are not. Why? Because if you rely on the artificial intelligence for your safety, you're more likely to be lax in taking care of yourself and fall in a manhole. Obeying the speed limit at 55 miles per hour is for your safety, but it is not a good idea in an ice storm. In other words, some safety measures can actually put people at risk. And the more safety measures enforced on a job site, the more risks people will take. Now, this all makes sense, and it's very eye-opening, but what's more staggering is how much Roe has been criticized by companies who use safety first. Are we surprised? If he's right, then corporations and construction sites and even OSHA would have to change their approach completely. Roe's bottom line is this. 
The kind of safety in safety first really should be third. The first should be the worker's own responsibility to care for himself on the job. And the second should be his responsibility to watch out for the safety of his co-worker. <clears throat> Roe is definitely onto something. But it requires the worker's hard work at being responsible. And it runs totally against the grain and mentality reflected in safety first. As I learned this from Roe, I couldn't help but make the connection to the faith. There is so much that the Bible teaches about, about the faith that runs contrary to and against the grain of the practice of the faith by so many in, in circles of, circles of Christian, Christianity and traditions of Christianity, and not surprisingly most in the area of the believer's responsibility to work out our salvation, which requires serious Bible study to know the will of God. In our passage before us, Galatians 5, 16 to 18, Paul tells us in no uncertain terms that we are responsible to live out our faith and to avoid teaching and traditions and practice that claim to do the same thing but by fleshly means and that we can stay responsible and avoid error if we walk by the Spirit. The main idea then of this passage I might put this way, the only way to prevent ourselves from carrying out the desires of the flesh in the Christian life is to depend upon the Holy Spirit because he is naturally opposed to the flesh. Therefore, depend on nothing else but him to live the Christian life. Let's open this up. Depend on the Holy Spirit because depending on the Spirit prevents us from carrying out the desires of the flesh. That's verse 16. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Paul had been talking about the importance, you remember, of living free in Christ, and he responds to the Judaizers' accusation that his gospel of grace offers a freedom that only breeds licentiousness. And he argued just the opposite. Freedom in Christ does not mean that a believer can do whatever he pleases. Absolutely not. It means that he has both the ability and the desire to please Christ and to love his neighbor as he ought. Salvation by grace enables us to fully express this love in the most powerful preventative, is the most powerful preventative there is against selfishness and quarreling and fighting and consuming one another. And here in this new section, Paul speaks with apostolic authority on this. But I say, and he explains how to nurture this love and to keep ourselves from gratifying the flesh. We identified the flesh last time as that unredeemed part of our makeup, our physical bodies with all its impulses and all its urgings that exert pressure on us. John MacArthur explains it as, Quote, the moral and spiritual weakness and helplessness of human nature still clinging to redeem souls. <clears throat> we made the point that the material and the immaterial part of our makeup are inseparable. They're inseparable. God made us that way as a unity of body and soul that will be fully redeemed in heaven. But until then, only our immaterial makeup 
has been redeemed, and even that, not perfectly complete yet, will not be perfect this side of heaven, of course. And that alone poses great struggles for us. We think sinful thoughts, and we commit sinful acts, and we need to repent of them. We become progressively better, I think, at living like Christ, looking more like him, conforming to his image with the help of the Holy Spirit and his word. But add to this struggle the unredeemed flesh that reacts to our surroundings with sensations, raw feelings, urges, impulses that affect our thinking and tempt us to entertain godly lusts. And our struggle has just become a full-blown fight. We didn't have this fight or even a struggle as unbelievers because we wanted to fulfill the lust of the flesh. There was nothing to restrain us. But at conversion, God replaces that old nature with a new one, a one that desires to love and serve him. And for the very first time in your life, you have a desire to please Christ and to give in and, and to give and not to give in to the lust of the flesh. And if we let ourselves be directed by the flesh, we give in to lustful thoughts and subscribe to human wisdom as we once did in our unconverted life. And at that very moment, we become utterly fleshly. Now, I want to introduce something to you at this point that will hopefully illustrate the great influence that the flesh has. Because I think we underestimate this. Even Jesus' physical body exerted pressures on him that he had to control. Think about this. This, this comes out most acutely in Luke's gospel, where Luke focuses on Jesus' humanity. Jesus, as you know, had two natures. He had a divine nature and he had a human nature because he was fully God and fully man. And his human nature was not fallen like ours was, okay? Jesus, Jesus didn't inherit a sin nature. He had no original sin. His human nature was sinless without the capacity to sin. But in his humanity, he still experienced all the sensations and all the urgings that come with a body of flesh and blood. Make no mistake. He got tired and he had to sleep. He once slept so soundly that not even the rocking of a boat in which he slept in the middle of a tempest could wake him up. You ever slept that hard? He also felt pain. He bled. He cried out on the cross, I thirst. And there's no question that his temptations were linked to his physical, earthly, human body. Why do you suppose that Jesus had to endure the temptations of the devil during a physical 40-day fast? Do you, ever, do you ever think about that? That was when his body was at its weakest, and therefore its cravings for food would be at its strongest. Scripture notes that Jesus was hungry at the end of his time, of his fast. Isn't that obvious? Well, yes, so why note it? Well, to indicate that Jesus experienced temptations at their strongest when he was at his physical weakest. And he still overcame them. His state was the worst case scenario. And every time Jesus overcame temptation, he always experienced it at its strongest point. You realize, don't you, that the moment you give in to temptation, that temptation was not 
at its strongest point. You experienced it at you experience it at its strongest point only when you resist it and it goes away. So Jesus was not only tempted in every way as we are, he experienced all these temptations at their strongest when he was at his weakest where any average person is most likely to be overwhelmed by the body's cry for sustenance. I'll do whatever you say, just give me food. Jesus showed restraint and control. He showed us that dependence upon the Holy Spirit is the secret to victory over temptation. Now, when we, when, when we were unconverted, Paul uses the phrase, the old man, to represent the old life. We invited these fleshly urgings and feelings and cravings, and we catered to them. And we actually trained ourselves to give sinful responses to our fleshly impulses without even knowing it. Then we responded to these fleshly impulses in a selfish way, even at the expense of others. Then we lived by sight. And we made decisions and gave responses and sought comfort and validation on the basis of our circumstances and by the way people receive us and how good it made us feel. That old converted life, that old man, was dead and buried with Christ at conversion. We rose with Christ to a new life. We rose a new man with a new nature and a new desire to love and serve Christ. But we carried many of our ungodly habits and trained sinful responses right into the faith with us. Those just don't disappear at conversion. And when those fleshly urgings exert influences on us now, well, now we have to train ourselves how to respond to them in a godly way, in a way that's in keeping with our nature classic New Testament passage on how to experience godly change in the Christian life is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 32. Paul teaches us there to put off the characteristics of the old man, the old unconverted life that died, the old sin nature. We're not that anymore. But we often live in a way that is characteristic of what we used to be. Furthermore, we're to put on in place of the ungodly habits correspond, that correspond to, to, to our, our, our godly nature, godly put-ons that are characteristic of who we are in Christ. So while you, while you used to get sinfully angry and blow up at someone, now you speak truth in love to that person and let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. Only truth that fits the need of the moment in order to give that hearer grace. You used to hold grudges, but now, you, but now you, you're careful not to let the sun go down without keeping current with people so that nothing festers. And rather than steal from others, whether it's their time, their credit, their property, their dignity, you've become a giver because you believe it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. Does this sound like you? As unconverted people with a sin nature, we couldn't help but be dictated by the, by the feelings and lusts and cravings and desires stirred by our flesh. But we didn't want to either. Instead, 
we developed sinful habits that catered to these sinful lusts. But now, as redeemed people, we still live in the same unredeemed bodies that stir up the same feelings and cravings and desires that can influence our thinking and our actions, but it's, it's, in, our new it's in our new nature to tame them, to beat them down, not to let them rule over us. And we can retrain ourselves in godly habits. And as Paul says in Romans 6.12, not let sin reign in our mortal body so that we obey its lusts. What a wonderful truth, liberating. This is the way of freedom. Now there's something else that I want you not to miss here. The verse exposes a wonderful cooperation that takes place between us and the Holy Spirit in us. On the one hand, Paul makes it very clear that the Spirit enables us to live righteously while we wait for the complete redemption of our bodies. The Holy Spirit, who redeemed us, now becomes the driving force behind our righteous living. Without his indwelling presence in our life, the Christian life would be not a reality for any of us, much less even possible to live. But in addition to that, and on the other hand, we are responsible to apply what the Spirit has given us. Paul says, walk by the Spirit. That's something we're responsible to do. To walk by the Spirit means to make sure that we are directed by the Spirit's truth, which you hold in your hands. He gave us a new nature. We must be motivated by it and by nothing else. He has given us a regenerated mind to understand his word. We must, we must use it to study the word for direction. He gave us the ability to overcome the lusts that come from our material makeup, and we must be become good at beating them down, putting any ungodly lusts or rogue sinful thoughts to death so that they will not have mastery over us. He has given us biblical strategies of sanctification, and we must employ them in order to prevent ourselves from sinning the same sin over again. Job made a covenant with his eyes not to look at a virgin. That was a great strategy. Joseph fled sexual advances from Potiphar's wife, another great strategy. James 4 verse 7 says, to resist the devil and he will flee from you, a very helpful strategy. Paul says to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God so that we will not devote our bodies to sinful activities, another great strategy. God gave us spiritual armor and he expects us to wear it all the time. He told us that he's always ready to receive us when we pray and ask for grace in time of need. And he will give us an abundance of wisdom when we ask for it. He's given us the ordinary means of grace to embolden us. He's given us so many strategies to overcome those tempting threats to our spiritual walk. He's given us everything we need, beloved, for life and godliness and the knowledge of the Son. There is no question that we are responsible to fight, knowing just how equipped the Lord has made us to live the Christian life well. It's always bewildering to me why so many in the church in America insist on going elsewhere for this kind of strength and wisdom and support. They have a treasure trove in the Bible, and they go outside to look for something else. 
They go outside all the time to the world's assortment of cheap substitutes to trust their spiritual lives with. And I believe for one, uh, one of two main reasons. One reason is that they don't know how to study the book, God's book, and, and extract timeless principles from it, nor are they interested in learning how to do that either. Too much time and effort. <clears throat> Isn't that just like our society, though? People want results immediately and without having to work hard to get them. Christians who adopt that tendency and avoid doing the hard work themselves seek, seek instant gratification. They shirk their responsibility to grow and resort to blame shifting. That seems to be the American way right now. People look for a pill for everything to become stronger, lighter, more muscular, smarter, bilingual. And Big Pharma is only too happy to take their money and sell them a bag of goods. Another reason, I think, is to this resistance to study and the anti-intellectualism that characterizes the church today is that many Christians look for the, the mystical and the sensational in their communing with God, as if those make it more real to them. They have to make their relationship real, you see. Tangible, without tangible realities. It's really a reaction to the honest Bible study, which they have replaced with God's audible voice that they believe talks them through their Christian life, or divine guiding signs and omens that are like road signs that point them in the direction that God wants them to go, or they believe God wants them to go, or a, a sort of, of intuition that they feel and, and think that prompts them to make godly decisions. And with any of these subjective means at their disposal, they, well, they don't have to study the Bible. Do you see how convenient that is? Now, this is not the way that the Bible advocates discerning God's will. More on that in just a few moments, but... You see, living by this mystical approach covers a multitude of sins. I can come to my own conclusions about God's will for me personally, and you cannot tell me otherwise. Because today, you have no right to deny my feelings. Isn't that convenient? We live in a time in our country where people determine who they are on the basis of how they feel. And it's much easier and safer when someone in the church accuses me of sin to respond by simply saying that God hasn't convicted me of it yet and keep right on sinning until he does. Now, if you think that that's far-fetched, this is not a straw man, by the way, that I'm setting up. This happens. A married couple came to my counseling office years ago for marriage counseling because the wife confessed to adultery. The odd thing was she was still in a relationship with her paramour when they came. Well, she said, I know what the Bible says, but God hasn't convicted me of it yet. And this kind of thinking manifests in so many bizarre ways. Bill is jobless, you see, because, as he puts it, God hasn't given me a job yet. Oh, I pray for my daily bread, be sure of that, but God's providence would have me to be unemployed right now. Meanwhile, he sits home, plays video games all day, and collects. 
while he dutifully waits for God to drop a job out of the sky. Newsflash for Bill, the Bible calls us to pray and do. Always pray and do. The same Holy Spirit who said that we must pray for our daily bread is the same one who also said we are to refuse those or those who do not eat, uh, work should not eat. Pray for a job if you don't have one, of course. But send out your resume, chase up with potential leads, spend your waking hours looking for one. Are you saying that God cannot work a miracle and give me a job? No, but the Bible does not tell us to rely on miracles. What God has decreed on our behalf is not something that we can know in advance, nor is it any of our business. He told us to obey the Holy Spirit's word, which calls us to be responsible, to work, pay our bills, support our family, give to the church. And contrary to popular belief, beloved, God usually uses natural means or human instrumentality to bring about his will more so than miracles. Let me just spend a little bit of time here because this is really unknown to many in the Christian world. I want to focus on human instrumentality. Consider the theme of holy war in the Bible. We see it everywhere, especially in the Old Testament. In holy war, God promises Israel that he will go before them to fight, to fight for them and deliver their enemies into their hands. But they had to fight. He would be with them and give their victory in their fighting. So why wouldn't God just destroy Israel's enemies with with an earthquake? Rain fire down from heaven on their heads as he did in Sodom and Gomorrah. That's no problem for God. Why did Moses have to confront Pharaoh with 12 long plagues that took weeks and kept the nation waiting in Goshen and, by the way, on the receiving end of Pharaoh's wrath with each new plague? Why march around Jericho seven times each time blowing the shofar? Why have Moses stand on a mountaintop with his hands stretched in the air for hours and have to have others help him keep his hands up when he got tired to ensure a victory? Did God give the kingdom to David while Saul was reigning? Yes. Why then did David have to live like a fugitive of justice until Saul lived out his illegitimate reign? Why should Joshua go through the hassle of leading Israel to battle against giants in the promised land when God could have wiped them out with a windstorm? The answer to all of these is the same. God, more often than not, uses ordinary means, natural means, and also human instrumentality to bring about his perfect will in our lives. He can and has and will move miraculously and independently of us. Yes, of course he will, but most of the time he involves us. And for a slew of good reasons, all of which we might not know right away or until we even get to heaven. He has the best timetable and the best plans for everyone involved in any given situation, both saved and unsaved, and we're not privy to him. Don't forget his grandest purpose or grandest reason, which is to bring glory to himself through this way, and his second reason, grand reason, 
the good of his people. And then there are all the marvelous lessons that you and I stand to learn in the fighting that we do while we wait for God to act. Our obedience, our fighting is part of his ordained means to bring about our good ends. You know, don't you, that God's sovereignty and Christians' responsibility are always presented in Scripture as working in tandem, never against each other. In fact, Scripture goes so far as to argue that because God is sovereignly working in our lives, we must be working all the more, which is the exact opposite of how many in the church, how the church think about this. They, they tell you that we mustn't get in God's way of working in us, just Sit back and let God do his work. Another convenient error that covers a multitude of sins. Paul preached in 2 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. So God has enlisted us in his service. He enlists us. We serve him. That's how it works. And as soldiers, we need to be careful not to get distracted while carrying out our orders. Listen to Philippians 2, 13, 12 and 13. Perhaps the greatest evidence that our responsibility in the Christian life should be predicated on God's sovereign working in us. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not, not as in my presence only, but but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For or because it is God who works in you, both to desire and to work for his good pleasure. How interesting. God's sovereignty is our reason to work all the more. His conforming us to the image of his son is our reason to conform ourselves to the image of his son. The Spirit is in us, leading us by his word, and we must walk by his direction. In verse 17, Paul gives the reasons why the Holy Spirit, by whom we walk, is the only preventative for gratifying the lusts of the flesh, and that is that the Holy Spirit is naturally opposed to it. That would be the second truth here. The Holy Spirit is naturally opposed to the flesh. For the desire of the flesh is against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Now, let's just stop here. There are some things in life that, are ab that absolutely don't mix, that don't mix. Oil and water, for one. Everyone knows that. Another is gasoline and water. Maybe you, you've experienced that the hard way when condensation produces water in your gas tank and your car coughs instead of runs. Wax and water repel each other. And all these Solutions are immiscible. That is, they don't mix with each other. Now, the living, live, now, living by the Holy Spirit and living by the flesh are like, are like water and oil. They don't mix. And in the rest of the verse, we learn that these two are not only opposite of each other, they are against each other. Paul says, for these are in opposition to one another in order to keep you from doing whatever you want. What Paul says here is that the one that you choose to submit to will prevent you from living according to the other. 
If you choose to cater to the fleshly desires, that will keep you from living by the Holy Spirit. And if you choose, and, and of course the Holy Spirit will oppose you at that point, and if you choose to live by the Holy Spirit, that will prevent you from living according to the flesh, and the flesh will rail against you. From this truth, we could be certain that a Christian cannot live by both at the same time. This is such a practical truth for many of us. and There are a lot of believers who miss this and wind up making a mess of their spiritual lives. Like the man and the woman who profess to be born again but still live outside of marriage. They live together outside of marriage. Or the Christian couple who are set on divorcing for illegitimate reasons. Or the believer who claims to have overcome his addiction to prescription meds but secretly keeps a stash hidden for just-in-case purposes. There are all kinds of fleshly ways that our hearts can create to allow us to live with one foot in heaven and one foot on the earth, you see, and make it look very spiritual at the same time so that no one suspects. But God knows and he has ordained the spirit and the flesh to be so incompatible with each other that those who try to live comfortably by both means will experience adverse, divinely ordained consequences. You're either all in for Christ or not. Joshua confronted the unrighteous Israel with similar words. He said, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the Euphrates River, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I see the Holy Spirit teaching us at this point in the text, make up your minds whom you will serve. You cannot serve both. Follow Christ as Lord and don't or don't follow him at all. And this is really a gospel issue, isn't it? I think... That is an issue that should have been settled at conversion. If you are a Christian and struggling at times, as we all do, and give in to certain fleshly desires that you fight against and you repent over and then you train to overcome, your heart's desire is in the right place. But if you intentionally look for ways to live in both worlds, God will expose you for the hypocrite that you are. We come now to the last part of this section then in Paul's bottom line that he wants to leave in the minds of the audience and it is really a no-brainer. Third truth is depend on nothing else but the Spirit to live the faith. Since Paul introduced this subject of freedom and the gospel of grace back in verse 1, you, you may have forgotten that it was in a larger context of denouncing the Judaizers' gospel of law, remember? A false works-based gospel that saves no one, but, but rather enslaves them and condemns them. They don't know the true freedom that comes in Christ alone. So here in verse 16, Paul comes full circle now to say, by way of reminder, that this great freedom that comes in Christ alone to love God and neighbor as we ought, and with the accompanying desire to do so, is not only diametrically opposed to the flesh, but also to the gospel of works, which very much caters to the flesh. Huh. 
What an interesting switch by the apostle. The Judaizers accuse Paul's gospel of grace of breeding licentiousness, which couldn't be further from the truth. But what is true is that their gospel of law actually encourages an individual to place his hope in his own flesh, his own might, that will eventually breed licentious living. And the Galatians have already experienced this in the unhealthy and racist, sinful segregation that they have now participated in against their fellow Christians in Galatia. This is why Paul says in somewhat of a, of a declaration, a summary statement, if you will, in verse 18, but if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under law. The but there at the beginning of that verse is, but is not the best translation of the Greek part particle here. Rather than introduce a contrast, it serves really, as it does in plenty of other places in the New Testament, to add more information. So I would translate it with a simple and. Paul says, in effect, and in addition to all of this, and in conclusion, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Everything that Paul has argued regarding the ministry of the Spirit has led us to this conclusion. For the Gentiles in Galatia, it is Paul's bottom line. For us today, it is a definitive statement that applies across the board. You should be careful, beloved, not to live the Christian life by any other means, whether it be by the harsh and damning legalism from a works mentality or a sinful antinomian lifestyle that disregards the importance of obeying God's commands, or anything in between, like the mystical, sensational way that we spoke about a few moments ago. Would you believe the adherers of that way actually look to Galatians 18 for support? Oh yes, the phrase led by the Spirit has become the standard phrase for decision-making in certain circles of Christianity. Maybe you know this. Those in these circles talk about being led by the Spirit, by which they mean that the Spirit communicates to them outside the pages of Scripture either through certain intuitive promptings or audible voices or some kind of ex something extra-biblical. But their view is not what we find to be true of this phrase in the New Testament. Here are the facts. Are you ready? The phrase led by the Spirit occurs only twice in the New Testament. Here, Galatians 5.18 and Romans 8.14. Neither of these passages have anything to do with decision-making. Huh. As we have seen from our passage, the context has to do with sanctification. That is working, or I'm sorry, I'm sorry, walking in righteousness by the Spirit's strength. And that's the exact same context of Romans 8.14. There is absolutely nothing in either passage that has to do with decision-making or how to discern God's will. In fact, Paul doesn't even tell us that we are to pray for the Spirit's leading in our lives. Did you get that? You might want to write that one down. If we're supposed to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to lead us in all righteousness, this would have been the perfect time for Paul to tell us, but he doesn't. 
And that's because it's not something that Christians should do. What? Really? I'm not supposed to ask the Spirit to, to guide me, to lead me? No, not when it comes to living by his word. You see, the reason should be obvious. He has already told you how to walk. He has outlined in his word, the Bible, how we are to think and act and speak. And by the way, even feel. All in plain English, so to speak. So that's never a question. Why ask the Holy Spirit to lead us when, he's already, when he already has led us? But just so you don't think that I'm making this up, John MacArthur said it a long time ago, long before I did, in his commentary at this point. Quote, Believers do not need to pray for the Spirit's leading because he is already doing that. They need to seek for willingness and obedience to follow his leading. End quote. The Holy Spirit has told us his will for every aspect of our lives, either in command form or principle form. We simply need to learn how to mine the meaning of those commands and principles through the hard work of Bible study. And the more you do it, the better you get. It's amazing, isn't it, the Christian lingo that circulates around and is never questioned. It's left out there to float for you to fill in your own definition. That's the problem when you don't know proper doctrine. In conclusion, I leave you with four practical thoughts. Number one, we fight the Christian life, yes, but the fight is a good one. Never forget the fight is a good fight. It is worth putting forth the effort because victory is always, will always be ours if we fight well. Every believer has the indwelling Holy Spirit to depend on when fighting not only against the dark forces of this world and the influences that come from it, but against his or her own weak and sinful flesh as well. Fight with all your might, as the great hymn by Josh Mossel put it. Fight the good fight with all your might. Christ is your strength and Christ your right. Lay hold on life, and it shall be your joy and crown eternally. Run the straight race through God's good grace. Lift up your eyes and seek his face. Life with its way before us lies. Christ is the path and Christ the prize. Number two, the battle of the flesh is a battle from within. It's a shared experience of all Christians, at least those of us who mean business for Christ and know how to grow in our sanctification, that life seemed easier for us before we were Christians. Just did. Now we find ourselves warring with ourselves. Seems kind of pulled back and forth. Of course we do, and we should. Oh yes, if you struggle, it means that you're alive and not comfortable with your sin. If you weren't struggling, you'd have reason to be concerned. Number three, the Holy Spirit must be control the controlling influence in our lives. The, our scripture reading for this morning was Ephesians 5, 6 to 21, and part of that, verses 15 to 18 said, be careful how you walk, not as wise, but unwise, as, not as unwise people, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Here it is, verse 17. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. 
And do not get drunk with wine in which there is in which there is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Notice that the command to be filled with the Spirit is our responsibility. That's a very important observation. Nothing mystical going on here. We're simply to place ourselves under the intoxicating control of the Spirit, which means to do what he says in his word. That's it. Not complicated. Maybe not always easy. Not complicated. Number four, and finally, our fight will not last forever. Oh no, someday the Spirit will relinquish everything in us and that wars against Him by redeeming our bodies and making us perfect. And that precious truth should certainly be one of the many truths that guide us in our fight. Our Father, we pray that this would be true of us. Pray that these truths from Galatians would be foremost on our minds, that they would that we would internalize them and that we would find them to be such a wonderful and glorious truth and that we would live by it, that we might honor you and please you, that we would that we could be sure that, that we are not at odds with you, but that you, that you are pleased with your children and that you are working through us, not only for our sakes, but also for the sakes of others. Work through us, we pray, to be a blessing to others, O oh God. And we pray that we will be tenacious about our fighting and that we will look to the Spirit's words for guidance for he has told us all that we need for life and godliness. And, oh God, we pray that we would convince ourselves of this truth every day for your glory, for your honor, and for the benefit of your church. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.